church. Welcome to week two of our Advent series entitled Light in the Darkness. And today we are in the next three verses of John chapter one. As we told you that we're going to be in the book of John throughout this entire Advent Christmas season. And so will you read with me from John chapter one, verse six through eight. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was reflecting this week on this passage about bearing witness to the light and John as it's spoken about here. And I was thinking about how one of the most off-putting things is when somebody represents something that's not true of them or they proclaim something as if it was true about them, but it is in fact not. One of my favorite, and I think actually the best superhero of all time, is Batman. Batman is, to me, the most dynamic superhero. He's morally dysfunctional. There's a lot of different things in his backstory. It's very intriguing and relatable. I also just like the Batmobile and his suit. He's awesome. And Batman is credited with being created by the man Bob Kane. If you see the comics, you see video games or movies or anything with Batman in it, it's going to be credited to Bob Kane. But the truth is, Bob Kane had little to do with the Batman that we know and love. There was another man invited into the creative process whose name was Bob Finger. And he was the one who thought through all the elements of Batman, his backstory and the gadgets and the characters and the tension. He was really the creative director and, and the mind behind this character that we know and love. But he was never credited. Bob Kane continued to, throughout the inception, throughout the entire process of, of Batman being implemented into the comics and into the movies, he took the credit, though he at one time wanted to change Batman to Birdman. Birdman, okay? Yet he took credit for all of the Batman that we know and love. And Bob Finger received none of it. None of the money, none of the accolades, nothing. In fact, Bob Kane only credited Bob Finger 15 years after Bob Finger died. See, when you learn this, if you're like me, you're just like, ah, man, that is so unattractive. I'm not a big fan of Bob Kane. Love Batman. But now I know who to credit. Because Bob Kane was not reflecting what was true. He wasn't being authentic. He was taking something that wasn't his and portraying it as if it was in fact his. And here in this passage in John Chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, we read about a man named John, a man who reflected what was true of him, a man who was authentic, who was real, and it was so incredibly attractive. See, here we read it, and it speaks about this man named John, and it can be a little bit confusing because John is the author of this gospel. It's John's gospel. So you're reading it, and you see, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And you think, oh, is he talking about himself? He's talking about a different John, a more famous, particularly at the time, John, who was John the Baptist. Because there was a man sent from God 
whose name was John. He's speaking about John the Baptist, and we see that later in his gospel. But it's a very interesting intro. It's an interesting intro because John the Baptist is one of the only that I know of people who is known by their title based off the work that they do. See, John the Baptist, his work, his job was baptizing people. He was in the wilderness. He was preaching the good news of salvation, that the Messiah is coming, that you need to confess and you need to repent and you need forgiveness of sins. And he was baptizing people. That was his work. And he was so identified with it that he was known as John the Baptist. But here, what we read is just about a man named John. The, the author here, John, wants to introduce John the Baptist apart from his work. To see who he is. Why? I think that's because the author wants us to see not what John does, but who John is and the mission that fueled him. His mission. Because that was what was so attractive about John the Baptist. And so we read here about who John is, verse 6. It says, very simply, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The first thing we see is that John was sent from God. He was doing what God meant for him to do. And as I said, it was attracting people, even though John was a weird dude, a super weird guy. He lived out in the wilderness, and that's where he was attracting people too. See, if you're trying to make a name for yourself, if you're trying to start a movement, you're trying to bring people around because you have this mission to influence people, you'd go into the cities, particularly you'd probably go into Jerusalem where most people are, and everybody goes many times a year for different festivals. But he's out in the wilderness. He's eating bugs. He wears camel hair pants. He's a weird dude. I mean, he's like a hippie. If John the Baptist was in 2020, he would be living in Portland. This is who he is. And yet, it was so evident to people when they were around him that he was sent from God even though he wore weird clothes, he ate bugs, and he was very brash. He was very strong and straightforward with the way that he spoke. Very bold. He never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence Them. And yet people were coming to him. They were traveling from towns and villages to go out into wilderness and find this strange man who preaches this strange message and is baptizing people. It was evident that he was sent from God. People said, you must be a prophet. In fact, many people thought that John the Baptist was actually the Messiah. That he was the one promised to come because there was something so compelling about him. You could just tell he was sent from God. The second thing we see about John was that he was a man. And that's important. John the author wants you to know that John the Baptist is just a man. He's just like us. He is not the Messiah. As it says in verse 8, he's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He is not the Messiah. He is a man born of earthly father and mother. He is just like us. There is nothing divine about John. But John the Baptist is the greatest man to ever be born of a woman. 
You may say, like, well, that's a really large claim. Well, it's not my claim. It's Jesus' claim. In Luke chapter 7 and in Matthew 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest man to be born of a woman, the greatest human. Jesus was man and God, fully God, fully man. Divinity in the flesh. But the greatest man to ever be born of a woman, he says, was John the Baptist. Why was he so exceptional? Why was he so great? Why was he so compelling? Why did everybody that came around him say, you must be sent from God? It's because of his mission that he lived out authentically. He didn't change who he was. He lived out his mission authentically, which was what? His mission, verse 7 and 8, very clearly reveals to us. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John's mission was to bear witness to the light, to reflect the light. It was to make visible the light so that people could see the light that John has already talked about, John the author, in the first five verses. The Word who has come, the Creator who has made real, who is a He, the light who gives life and shines in the darkness. John's mission was to reflect that person, to reveal that person. Baptizing was just a result of that. His mission was not his work. His mission was not to baptize. His mission was to reflect the light. The means to that end was through baptizing, was through his work, because he was not the light, but rather to reflect the light. Why? So that all might believe through him. And every time people came to him, which happened many times, and they said, hey, are you the light? Are you the Messiah? He would always redirect them back to Christ, back to the true light. In fact, we read about John a few chapters later, John the Baptist, in chapter 3. And what happens in John chapter 3 is that John has already baptized Jesus. Jesus has gathered his 12 disciples, has engaged in his public ministry, and Jesus with the disciples are baptizing people. Jesus is preaching about the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching about the Savior who has come, who is He. Preaching about the forgiveness of sins and grace made available through faith. And He's baptizing people. And now John is still baptizing people in the wilderness as well because he's still on mission to reflect the light to people. And he's saying, hey, the light has come. The light is here. And people come up to John and say, hey, listen, we heard something. We heard that Jesus and his disciples, they're out baptizing people. The translation is, do you know that there are people out there, Jesus and his disciples, doing what you're supposed to do? They're doing your job. You see, because people got confused with John's job versus his mission. They thought that his mission was to baptize people, but it was not. His mission was to reflect the light, 
not baptized. That was just his work. That was the means to the end of his mission. There's a great question to ask yourself for me to ask myself, which is this. Does your job inform your mission or does your mission inform your job? Does your job inform your mission or does your mission inform your job? Meaning, when someone comes to you and says, hey, what is your life all about? Is your first instinct to speak about your job, the goals you have in your career, the success that you are chasing after? What is actually driving you? What is actually motivating you? Is it professional success? Is it reputation? Is it a dollar amount? Is it the expectation of others? Is it to be heralded as intelligent? Is it the goodness that you might portray? What is it that is actually motivating you and driving you? What is the thing that you would determine is really what your life is about? The real question here is, what are you surrendered to? Are you surrendered to your mission or your job or your work? And that word inform is important. I used it strategically. Because the word inform means to give an essential or formative principle or quality to. So, does God's mission for you give the essential or formative principle to your work? Or does your work give the principle, the essential and formative principle to God's mission? Which one influences the other? Which one are you really surrendered to? Too. Because for us, our work is, it's ingrained in us that our work is our identity. It is very difficult at times to sort out our identity from our jobs. In fact, when we meet people, one of the first questions that we ask is, hey, what do you do? What do you do? One, because that's just normal conversation. We have such a high value on work that one of the ways that we get to know each other is we ask what you do. But another reason is that we kind of size each other up based upon what you do. You're like, oh, what do you do? Oh, wow, that's a really interesting job. Tell me more. Or that's not a very interesting job to me. That's nice. Or in my case, when people ask me what I do, and I say pastors say, hmm, that's weird, and then they want to get away from me. They think that like, and, and I see them sometimes when I say, oh, I'm a pastor. They're like, did I curse a bunch already? They're like calculating in their head. We size people up. We judge people based upon what they do because we believe our identity is attached to our work and other people's identity is attached to their work. And in particular, when people ask that question, what do you do if you're proud of your job, if you love your job, if you've achieved, you love answering that question. But if you don't like your job, if you're not where you want to be, if you're struggling with work, if you've lost your job, if you have shame for what you do or what you're not doing, you don't like that question because it's affecting of your identity because that's so ingrained in us that we are what we do. This week I was doing some soul searching because it is true that as a pastor, you can get your identity messed up too. You can begin to equate 
your identity with your work. You can begin to allow your work to inform God's mission to you rather than having God's mission inform your work. And I was reflecting and I was praying and I was considering this and I was thinking about my Enneagram. Some of you are going to love that. You love the Enneagram. I am an Enneagram 3, which is the achiever. And when you read about the achiever, they're success-oriented, they're adaptable, they want to be a role model, they're driven. I'm like, I mean, I love those things. But then the negative side, not so great, it's they're workaholics, they're very competitive, and this one really got to me. I was reading up on my Enneagram again this week. They can be alienated from themselves. That sounds terrifying. Like you don't even know yourself. You're just alienated from yourself because you're just driving to accomplish and to achieve. And thinking about this and thinking about my Enneagram and how that equates to my job and to my relationships and to opportunities, I can begin to think, the temptation is to believe that who I really am My identity is rooted in my Enneagram and how that connects to my work or to my friends or to my family or that that's really who I am instead of me being a son of the king. And that's who I am, regardless of my Enneagram, whether I'm functioning healthy or not, regardless of where I am in my career, regardless of my social circle, regardless of whatever in my life, my true identity is that I'm a son of a king of the king. See, I'm not Carter the pastor. I'm not Carter the dad. I'm not Carter the husband. I am Carter, son of the king. And you too, you are not the lawyer or the healthcare worker or the teacher or the jobless. You are not the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the father or the mother or the spouse. You're not the single You are not any of these things. What you are through faith in Christ is a son or daughter of the king. That is who you are invited to be through faith, and that is in fact your identity. That is where you are to be rooted. Because if your identity is not rooted rightly in who you are before the king, that you are a son or a daughter loved because of Christ, and his sacrifice made full of light because you have received Christ who is the light in the darkness. If your identity is not rooted rightly, then your mission can get misplaced. It can get misplaced. And you can begin to think that what really defines you is your work or the perception of others. That's really what informs you and gives that essential informative principle to your life is your job or your success or your financial gain or what others say about you or what you've achieved. And this is dangerous because your mission, your mission comes not from your job, it comes not from your Enneagram, it comes not from your parents' expectations, it comes not from the perception of others, it comes not from your passions, it comes not from the person that you look up to, it comes not from an influential book that you read, it comes not even from that wise mentor in your life. Your mission 
comes from God's word. And it is very clear because it's the same mission that John has, which is to reflect the light. That's your mission. You ever wondered, what's my mission in life? To reflect the light. That is your mission. Not your job. Your job is a means to that end, to reflect the light. So when they come up to John, as he's baptizing people, as he's living out this mission in his career, and his calling, and his work, which was to baptize and to preach in the wilderness, and they say, hey, are you upset that Jesus and his disciples are doing the same thing that you're doing? He responds by saying, he must increase and I must decrease. See, his identity was not attached to his work. His identity was attached to who Christ was, to his faith, to the fact that he has come to bear witness to the light. And so even though John was a major celebrity, God had given him a platform with huge crowds that came out to see him. Being a celebrity and having that platform was not his goal. It was an opportunity to live out his mission, which was to reflect Christ. And so, if Christ was being more visible, if he was being more made known, if, if John in his life and his work was reflecting Christ to a degree where people were coming up and questioning whether or not John was upset that Jesus was getting more credit and John's celebrity was decreasing, that means he was successful. Because his mission was not his work his mission was to reflect the light, and his work was a component of that. It was a means to that end. And your mission is the same. It's to reflect the light. And your work, and your opportunities, and your influence is a means to that end. Here's a question to ask. In your work, in your work, is there increasing visibility of Jesus? In your work, is there an increasing visibility of Jesus? When people see you speak or how you act or how you respond to achievements or adversity, do they see Christ? Who do you want people to see and celebrate? Is it you and your achievements? Or is it Christ? in your achievements. So you can even want people to see your adversity to provide comfort, sympathy, empathy. Or do you want them to see Christ even in your adversity? What light are you revealing in your work? Is it the light of Christ, the light in the darkness, or is it the light that you seek to manufacture so people can praise you? Or comfort you? That's an important question to ask. Is there an increasing visibility of Jesus in your work? Are you reflecting the light? Is that mission solid because your identity is rooted so that in your work and in your influence and in your opportunities, you are reflecting Christ? You may be thinking, well, what does that look like? How do I do that? Well, your mission has a baseline and a skyline. Every mission has a baseline and a skyline as we see in Scripture. There are baseline truths, which means that they're, they're relevant and they're applicable to everyone. 
So here are some baseline truths in Scripture. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are to be true of every follower of Christ. They're relevant to everyone. Then there's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Baseline truths applicable to everyone. The importance of prayer and worship is applicable and relevant to everyone. These are all baseline truths. The importance of confession and repentance. But then there are skyline truths, which are individual applications of truth that may be different for you than they are with someone else. Individualized applications of truth. And we see that here in, John, in Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist again. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and he's sharing a baseline truth. He's saying that you, your life needs to change. You need to confess and you need to repent. And the crowds are gathered and they're listening. It's, it's applicable to everyone. Everyone here, you need to confess, you need to repent, you need to see life change. And then the crowd begins to ask questions, like, what does that look like? So he gives a baseline truth that is applicable to everybody. He says, if you have two coats and there's somebody in need, give one coat away. And do the same with food. If you have two meals and somebody's hungry, give one away. Applicable and relevant to everybody. But there are some that are in the crowd that say, wait a second, I need a little bit more. So they come up to John and they ask him for more individual application of that truth. The first group that comes up are tax collectors. They say, hey, what, what does this mean for us? John doesn't say, I mean, I don't know, just like be fair and be kind to people. Doesn't give them another generalized baseline truth. He says, for you, it means don't extort people. Because tax collectors were known to extort people. They would collect taxes for the Roman government, but they could add a tax on top and extort people for more money because they would keep all of it. He says, for you, don't extort people. That's your individual applied truth. Then the soldiers come up and say, hey, what about us? What does this look like for us? He says, don't shake down people. Because the soldiers had power and they had honor and they had authority. And sometimes they would use it for personal gain. They would shake people down and take from them or steal from them and get power or luxury for themselves. And he says, don't shake people down. He says, also be content with your rations. Don't try to go get more by asserting your power over other people. Skyline truth. Individual application of truth. And your mission, as we see here in John chapter 1, your mission has a baseline truth, which is to reflect the light. Reflect the light of Christ. But there's skyline truth too. There's individual applications of that that are particular for you that are not the same for somebody else? What does it look like for you to reflect the light? Now, I don't know because I don't know your situation. But I do know that you need to begin to discover what that skyline truth is for you, what it looks like for you to live out that baseline mission in your life to reflect the light. You need to discover that. And the way that you can discover that it's through a community of people. It's why we constantly encourage people to get involved in a small group. 
whether you join digitally or you join some of our in-person gatherings. Because we want you to be around other people where you can discover these formative and essential principles of life. God's mission to reflect the light informing your work, your life, your relationships, your influence. So actually, small groups, I want to ask you this week to ask that question in your group, in your community. Hey, what is the skyline application? What's the individual application of that truth, that baseline truth to reflect the light? And I want to invite you, if you're not in a group, join one this week and get involved in that discussion. But I want to leave you with a couple skyline individualized applications that I think are applicable to most of you, if not almost all of you. And they deal with two arenas of your life. What does it look like to reflect the light in your social circle and your social media? First, what does it look like to reflect the light in your social circles? One, I think it means to proclaim God's working in you. What I mean by that is oftentimes we proclaim what we are doing for ourselves so that other people can say, oh, wow, that's great. Let me tell you about my new routine. Let me tell you about this book that I'm doing. Let me tell you about my new sleep patterns. Let me tell you about my new diet. Let me tell you about what I'm, my workout you know, routine. So that people can say, oh, wow, that's awesome. What if you started to proclaim how God is working in your life with your friends? Not just your Christian friends, your non-Christian friends, your co-working friends. Let me tell you what God's doing in my life, the way he's challenging me, something that he just taught me this week. Reflect the light by sharing what God is doing in you. Secondly, publicly pray for presented pain. Publicly pray for presented pain. Meaning, when one of your friends shares something that is difficult in their life that they're going through, pain in their life, publicly pray for them. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for you. And then you may or may not, depending on whether or not you wrote it down, whether or not you remember. When somebody presents pain, pray for them in the moment right there. Say, hey, can I pray for you? Is that okay? And then maybe ask their permission to pray for them with other people too. Reflect the light of Christ. His power evident in prayer. And lastly, reflect the light in your social circle by prioritizing public and personal worship. See, so you're called to come and worship Christ as the light in the darkness and to prioritize that, to make 5 p.m. on YouTube or if you ever join us in person, a priority in your life, to make your personal worship, whether it's in the morning or the evening or you go for a prayer run or ride your bike and listen to worship music, whatever it is for you in your personal life and public worship, prioritize that and don't allow invitations and other things to squeeze that out of your life. Reflect Christ to people. This is a priority that I worship. King of kings, the light in the darkness. And lastly, your social media. How do you reflect the light in your social media? The first one, make your personal faith public. If somebody were to follow you for one week, would they see Jesus on your Instagram? your Facebook, your Twitter, your Snapchat, your TikTok? Would they see Jesus? Do you reflect Christ in what you say and how you comment and what you write and what you share? 
they see Christ. Make your personal faith public. Secondly, post praise of how God is working in other people. Don't give way to envy and covetousness. When you see God working in somebody else's life, celebrate it. Comment on their post. Share a picture and write something about what God is doing in them because we as the church, as God's people, as sons and daughters of the king, as our identity, we are family and we should celebrate each other and that reveals and reflects Christ when we do that. Honor people, celebrate people. You may think, well, I don't have that much influence. I mean, what difference is it going to make? Because you think if you don't have the blue check mark or you don't have thousands of followers, you don't have influence, but you do. Every single person that you're connected to, every friend, every follower, every view is someone that God has put before you on a platform that you can use and steward your influence to reflect Christ. It may be a thousand people. It may be ten people. When you put a story on Instagram and then you look on the bottom and you see the amount of people that have viewed it, that's the amount of people you have the opportunity to reflect Christ to. So I'm going to give you one last challenge. And that is this. Reflect the light of Christ on your social media by presenting yourself a bipartisan believer. Present yourself a bipartisan believer. Maybe never more important than this time that we live in now. What do I mean by that? Well, the word bipartisan means cooperation between two competing policies or parties. So what does it mean to to present yourself as a bipartisan believer? Does that mean that you should not have political convictions? No, of course not. Does that mean that you shouldn't align yourself more closely with one political party? No, of course not. You're called to be a citizen. You're called to be engaged. What it means is that you should not allow yourself to be defined by a party while you lose opportunity to cooperate or engage with somebody who disagrees with that party or that policy. That you give yourself the opportunity to cooperate and to engage with people who fall on both sides of the aisle uh, aisle because they see you caring for them even in your disagreement. And so you wait before you post. You wait before you comment. You ask yourself this question. When I write this, when I share this, when I say this, am I reflecting Christ? It doesn't mean it won't be controversial at times, but am I reflecting Christ? Be a bipartisan believer because we are called to reflect the light in the darkness, not the darkness pretending to be the light. Because there's only one light, and his name is Christ. And he has a kingdom of which you are a part of through faith. This is the beauty of our God is that he invites you and me into his kingdom through faith because Christ, the light, overcame the darkness on the cross so that darkness would no longer cover us, would no longer be that weight that we feel, that, that life that we kind of sort through, not knowing where we're going directionless. No, we have a rooted identity in Christ because of his death and his sacrifice for you and for me because he came forth alive from the grave on the third day, and we believe that he is, in fact, the author of life. And so our identity is rooted, that we are a son and a daughter of the king, that we have the light and the darkness, and our mission is to reflect him, is to be an ambassador of that kingdom first and foremost, and to be able to speak with people, and to love people, and to share with people who Christ is in our work, in our social 
circles and our social media, that they would see Christ and not us. Christ before anything else. So I pray, church, that you and me, we reflect this week on what does it look like to reflect Christ with our influence in our work, in our families, in our social circles, and even on our social media. He must increase in our lives, which means you and me, we have to decrease. May we do that. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace to us, that you are patient with us, that you are in fact the light in the darkness that reveals the darkness sometimes that we fall into, that we are tempted by to define ourselves with our work or the perception or the praise of other people. We pray, God, that we would see that our mission is to reflect you and it is a joyous mission to live out. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of the King. We are made new. We have light residing in us because, Christ, we have you through faith. Would we seek to live that out? Would we reflect the light in our work, in our social circles, and social media, in our relationships? Would people see you and us, Christ? Would you increase in our church and in our lives, and would we decrease? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.